Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is the best of free expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm delighted to say I have with me George Magnus. George is a longtime, very experienced and widely regarded observer of and commentator on China. He's written several books, including one published just a few years ago, which looks both prescient and extremely germane to the discussion we're having. It's called Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in jeopardy. We've all got used in the last 20 years to thinking of the Chinese economy as this extraordinary behemoth that's growing steadily, growing from a fraction of the size of the US economy 30 years ago to basically, certainly in terms of purchasing power parities, you know, roughly similar size to the US economy, obviously much smaller in terms of per capita because of the size of the population. But we've been used to seeing China as being on this trajectory of economic ascendancy. And, you know, certainly here in the United States, there have been hundreds of scholarly articles and books talking about China's century and China's economic inevitable rise to the sort of the economic superpower status. Should we see this as, you know, either cyclical or even if they're structural problems, maybe, you know, problems that are going to have to be resolved, will be resolved. As you say, there's going to have to be some of these imbalances in the system are going to have to be worked out. The government's going to have to figure out a better composition of demand. But we can see all of this as a kind of a glitch in China's steady rise. Or does this to you, and I should turn, I mentioned in my introduction, you wrote a book a couple of years ago about you know, red flags, about the perils that China was facing. Is this something more serious than that? Is this something that actually calls into question the actual sustainability of the economic model that China has, in particular, the idea that China could achieve a level of economic success and prosperity equal to or greater than the United States with this very different economic system? Does it fundamentally challenge our assumptions about China's economic trajectory? I think it does. And I think if you have to kind of pin the donkey really on the person, really, I think you have to say that something dramatically changed in China's governance structure and its performance metrics when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. It's not to say that he's personally responsible for everything that's happened, because he certainly inherited imbalances and problems, headwinds, which had already kind of been blowing a little bit, I would say roughly since the financial crisis, but maybe they even predate that. But he's definitely made them worse. And um, obviously, we don't have time to go into all the kind of, you know, sort of thorny details. But the problems that China faces now, are they're all essentially homemade. I mean, the bad external environment, export controls, constraints on technology, and these things don't help. And they certainly make for a dramatically different sort of environment from the China that we experienced and watched during the last 20 or 30 years. But The domestic or the homemade, made-in-China problems are really, and we've alluded to them all, really. I mean, we've alluded to the debt problem, which is a tax on future growth. We've alluded to the kind of rapid aging of the population. We haven't really spoken about productivity growth, which has stalled. The governance problem, particularly that of private enterprises. The message to private enterprises is certainly, you know, we, we want you to make money, but only if you basically align your interests 
with the social and political goals of the Communist Party. So there are big kind of constraints under which uh, private entrepreneurs and firms now operate in the shadows, really, of the state system, state enterprises. Um, So for all of these reasons, I think that China faces systemic problems. I mean, we would say as, uh, you know, kind of external economists, should we say, but actually this is also true of some Chinese economists as well, that the model of China needs a dramatic overhaul, but it's politically extremely difficult for the Communist Party to embrace these changes because they would threaten the raison d'etre of the party, which is to rule unchallenged. So I think China's tipping point in, you know, debt, real estate, demographics, these are all very important things, but the politics really, which under lies, whether it can change or not, I think is really important. And maybe under a different government in the future, things could change. But I think under Xi Jinping's government, I think it's very unlikely. The Wall Street Journal reported that we had a, a very interesting piece about the attitude of Xi Jinping and his economic advisors to this, and particularly Xi Jinping, and that in particular, he seems to be kind of actually ideologically opposed to the idea of promoting consumer-led growth, which is one of the things that has been talked about in China for a very long time, is the way for China to transition from that, from a kind of developing economy to a more developed one. You need a you know, much higher level of consumption as a total proportion of GDP. He seems to be not just reluctant to do that, but actually ideologically against that, because he sort of sees in that kind of expressions of individuality. It elevates the individual and individual consumption tastes and the sort of the expression of the individual. He's against it. So if that's true, if that's right, that does suggest suggest that it is almost a choice here that China's making that it's not going to do things that could maybe you know, assist it to transition towards a, you know, kind of a, a model of sort of sustained growth, but actually that it wants to maintain this, what you've just described, that, you know, the mistakes that Xi Jinping's making, he seems to be kind of almost doubling down on them. Yeah, I was going to say it's a sort of a fantasy, but I think, you know, people still entertain the idea that maybe things get kind of bad enough that the government will change its direction, change its trajectory, To me, this is like asking leopards to change their spots. I just don't think that's going to happen. So these people are basically Leninists, right? And they focus very much on a kind of a production, investment, supply orientation of the economy from which they think that trickle-down benefits will raise the quality and standard of living of the population. They do not really believe in the kinds of things that we practice in varying degrees in liberal-leaning democracies of we think social welfare is fundamentally a kind of an okay idea. We have different kind of perceptions about how far it should go. But we actually think that social safety nets are a good thing. We think that public intervention in the economy to promote consumption and, you know, low taxes is a good thing, generally speaking. For Xi Jinping, this is all somewhat alien, to be honest. He certainly now, if not um, in the beginning of his term of office, certainly believes, like we do, that national security is really important, or the government is really kind of obsessed, I think, with stability and with controlling risks. They're not really interested in going for growth. They're not really interested in risk-taking, certainly not the kind of what they would call egregious risk-taking, which we think is like part of the whole process of creative destruction, etc. And so this kind of this controlling, repressive kind of view about how to manage the economy, which is built on a faltering model, if you see what I mean, I think this is almost like a bit of a doom loop, actually. Larry Fink is the co-founder and chief executive of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company. 
The company Fink founded 35 years ago now invests more than $9 trillion of customer funds, and it has major stakes in most of America's biggest companies, as well as many, many more businesses around the world. I think it's probably fair to say that, that the man, the person, the human being most identified, and that's it's the topic of ESG, environmental social governance. Um, now, I know you've said recently that you don't really want to talk about ESG anymore. At one point you said earlier this summer you're actually ashamed of some of the language around ESG. But I must ask you, it's an obvious question. You have been very much identified with this, and yet it is leading to great political controversy yes. now. You've seen you're the, you know, the target of disinvestment by certain red states in particular uh, in the country. You've been criticized by presidential candidates and other. And a lot of people do feel, to put it bluntly, that the pursuit of ESG, the pursuit of those goals that are not specifically about getting the highest possible returns for investors, that's the politicization of finance, the politicization of business. It's pursuing non-financial goals you know, in pursuit of some political agenda. Do you think that whatever you think of that particular accusation, that maybe this sort of ESG enthusiasm that we had from a lot of businesses over the last few. Do you think it went too far? Well, let's step back and talk about me and BlackRock related to that. We're a 35-year-old company. We're responsible for $9.1 trillion of other people's money. In the last 12 months, we were awarded over $300 billion. Everything we do is on behalf of our clients, and everything we do is with the purpose of financial returns. There is not one thing we have ever done, whether it's ESG or any other issue, is in the pursuit of financial return. That is our fiduciary responsibility, and we live that every day. And so the notion that we're not a fiduciary will look at the response of our clients awarding us $300 billion over the last 12 months. $9.1 $9.1 trillion. So the results of our financial performance really speaks loudly that we are actually a very good investment firm seeking financial returns. But I do write about some of the long-term issues that we have to be focused on. The reason why I backtrack from the term ESG, because it means something to every different person. It's almost so amorphous that you can't put your hands around it. Well, you say that, but there are actually, you know, there are very clear you know, there are indexes, you can go, you know, there are, True. There, there are these these things are attempted to be quantified. So, it, you know, it's a clear focus of a lot of people's investing, isn't it? And it's not something you can Many completely Many clients of ours are choosing to invest in investment strategies that are ESG focused or sustainability or focused. I would say most of the funds, when you speak about it, are more in the terms of environmental. Yeah. And we just did a survey a few months back where 56% of our global investors are going to put more and more investments in decarbonization. And in fact, over 50% of our clients said this is their number one priority of the people who voted of the 56%. So the reality is more and more investors are looking to find ways of decarbonizing investing, whether that is because of the IRA in the United States or other areas where they think you're going to get financial return. Most of the investors look at it as a good long-term financial return. And our job is to provide clients different choices, different investment styles, different ideas. And you're correctly in framing that there are some politicians who created this. In my mind, they were the ones who politicized it. It is just an investment style that we don't make the decision where clients put the money. All $9.1 trillion is our client's choice. Even our investors who invest in ETFs, and mutual funds, the individual investor. We don't 
work with any one individual investor. We work with financial advisors, and they choose to invest at BlackRock because we have the best returns in some categories or something like that. So this has been way taken out of proportion. But it's true, isn't it, though, that you, you have, again, $9 trillion um, yes. assets under management. Yes. You are a big shareholder yes. in many of America's largest companies, in many in the companies world. around the world, yeah. thousands of companies around the world. Right. And it's true, isn't it, that you do use that power, sometimes with board seats or proxy votes or whatever. You use that power to coerce or to at least put it to, to incentivize companies I, I to pursue particular, but you don't do that. Well, I'm not involved in corporate stewardship at all. Zero. I'm not involved at all. But BlackRock does not do coercion. What we are trying to be informed for financial gain. Okay. We have the largest financial uh, corporate stewardship team in the world. Our job is to be engaged with companies, understand what they, how they're moving forward. There was one area where you could say we were more, I would say, vocal. And that was we asked clients to publicly report on scope one and two. Explain what that is. Sorry, please. So there, there are three different measures of your carbon footprint. Yeah. And scope three is all your vendors and all your clients and all that stuff. We have been hostily against that. The SEC is trying to pose that as a, mm. as a platform. Basically, scope one and two is reporting your own carbon footprint. Over 50% of our assets we manage are retirement assets, 30-year obligations. All that. I want to know what every company, how they're navigating this transition. I don't believe the transition is going to happen anytime soon, but it, it is going to have to happen over the next 30, 40 years. I want to see how they're moving forward in terms of disclosure. And quite frankly, now, 80% of most companies now voluntarily report their disclosure. And that is a good example now, Jerry, why in the last two years, our voting with management has been so much in favor of what they're doing. And in fact, we voted against almost most of the proposals that, quote unquote, were environmental mm. last year. And the reason why, and I think you'll appreciate this, is the SEC changed the standards mm. to what can be included in a proxy conference, you know, vote. And most of it is non-economic, and we vote against it. And even like in directors, we vote, you know, close to 90% every year in favor of what management and their directors. And in most cases, when we voted against a director, they're overboarded or governance. We have a view that if you're on more than four boards, it's a little too much, and you're probably not giving the proper time. But so you're saying you don't use those votes or the you know the positions of share board directors to particularly to promote and you haven't done that to promote other than you say maybe disclosure, disclosure. other than disclosure you do so absolutely so decarbonization you're not encouraging companies through your significant stakeholders holding in those companies to pursue kind of decarb particular decarbonization so we own 385 billion dollars in energy companies we're the largest owner of energy companies. Mm. We're working with every energy company in the world and working with them on their business, but also working with them in new properties. I believe the energy companies, and I said this in my letters, are going to be part of the solution because they own all the geology sure. for sequestration. Yeah. I'm a huge believer in sequestration as one of the mechanisms to really improve the world. A veteran of the most recent Republican administration, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton served for a brief but highly eventful year and a half as President Donald Trump's national security advisor. And of course, he wrote a book about the searing experience that he had there. Before that, Mr. Bolton served as ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush. 
and had previously served in other roles in the State Department. We're seeing, obviously, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which many people would watch with some satisfaction, has gone disastrously for Russia and with great admiration for what the Ukrainians have done. But Russia is increasingly giving all the indications that it's got no intentions of backing down there. The Ukrainian counteroffensive that began in the spring made some progress, but maybe I don't think the progress that a lot of people were hoping for it. Is there a reasonable expectation here that by continuing to support the Ukrainian military effort, the Ukrainian defense with the kind of support that the US has been giving it, is there any reasonable expectation, do you think, that this can end in a relatively short period of time in a way that is clearly favorable to Ukraine and indeed to us and to Ukraine's allies? Well, I don't see it ending favorably in a short period of time, in large part because I think the U.S. has proceeded without a strategy in the conflict, deterred by Russian threats of conventional military pressure elsewhere or saber-rattling about tactical nuclear weapons. And I think it's something that puts a lot of Republicans in a very difficult position, supporting the Ukrainians in a war where they don't think the president really understands what he's doing. I mean, just take, for example, the argument one after the other about shall we supply this weapon system? Shall we supply that weapon system? How about that weapon system? And eventually the stuff finally gets through to Ukraine, but not in a strategic way. Strategy conceptually is not that hard. You define what your objectives are, and then you make sure you have the resources to accomplish them. That's not what we've done in Ukraine. We've fed in piecemeal capabilities that the Ukrainians have turned to good advantage. But this war has not been fought strategically. The Ukrainians have done an amazing job. I give them due credit. I acknowledge, as Secretary of Defense Austin said, I think about a year ago, that the Russians are feeding their army into a wood chipper. I think that's an entirely good thing for the United States. But I do think this war would be in much different shape and could be over by now if we had had a more strategic approach. And I think the lack of strategy, I had this eerie feeling about Vietnam that gradual escalation bit by bit by bit as American public support for the war declines, you get to the point where actually contemporary military historians of Vietnam, I think, make a very compelling case we could have went had public support held out. But it didn't. So we had the result we did. I just have these nightmares that Biden is doing, in effect, in very different circumstances, I acknowledge, but to the same consequence of what Lyndon Johnson did. As you know, there are some people, including people who are more well, termed hawkish on foreign policy, who argue that the level of U.S. support and especially the way it's depleting certain U.S. military stocks and distracting the United States in terms of its diplomatic and strategic focus, that this is overall a distraction and a distraction from the really the major geopolitical challenge and indeed potential confrontation the United States faces over the next however long it may be, which is against China. And that even though Russia and China are allied and are clearly seem to be moving more and more, in lockstep and a new axis against the West, that the real threat is China is making increasingly belligerent noises about Taiwan. At any point that they may seize the opportunity of the US being so heavily focused and it was supplying so much military assistance to Ukraine to strike against Taiwan. Again, notwithstanding your criticisms that the administration is not doing enough on Ukraine, is the effort in Ukraine a distraction from what is the larger geopolitical challenge for the U.S.? No, I don't. I mean, I do think China is the existential threat of the 21st century, but I think it's America is a global power and has to be capable of responding to challenges in a global way. 
I do think we've seen highlighted the inadequacies of the U.S. defense supply capability in the amount we've had to put into Ukraine. This is something that happened at the end of the Cold War. Remember the peace dividend? People said, well, history's over. You know, we don't need all these capabilities. We do. Our national defense budget today takes uh, slightly over 4% if you add in veterans benefits of GDP. It ought to be at the 5-6% range as it was during the Reagan administration. And it's just a mistake to say, well, you only have to worry about Asia. If people should note, China is buying considerable amounts of Russian oil and gas. It's laundering Russian money through its opaque financial system to escape sanctions. French National Security Advisor recently said they are supplying weapons to the Russians. In Beijing, they are watching how the United States and its allies behave in Ukraine very carefully. And I think they believe if the U.S. won't stand up to aggression against a country in Europe that's applying for NATO membership, what are they going to do if a country in Asia is threatened by China? And if they come to the wrong conclusion, that endangers Taiwan even more than it's in danger already. After the break, more of the best of free expression with Jerry Baker. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Now back to the best of free expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. And Attorney General William Barr joins me now. Bill Barr, thanks for joining Free Expression. Thanks for having me, Jerry. So now we have four, four criminal cases against Donald Trump kind of more or less running concurrently. We have the Alvin Bragg DA in Manhattan over Stormy Daniels payments issue. We have the two Jack Smith special counsel cases, one over the Mar-a-Lago documents, one over the post-election kerfuffles. And now we have the Georgia one. How would you rank these in terms of their seriousness and the likelihood that they will result in some conviction uh, somewhere other. It sounds as though you think both the federal cases by the special counsel, Jack Smith, you think they're pretty strong. Well, let's start with the worst. The worst one, which is, in my opinion, a grave abuse and a political hit job, is the one in New York with Alvin Bragg involving the payoffs to Stormy Daniels. And I think that case is an outrage. And unfortunately, set the stage for these other cases, which then undermine their credibility. I don't know what will happen in New York, but I think it's a lousy case. And if there's a functional justice system up there, then it shouldn't survive. It's largely predicated on a federal statute, which they're misreading. To me, the most legitimate and serious case is the document case. I think the document case is legitimate. I think if the facts are as alleged, it should be a slam dunk. I also feel it has nothing to do with the political process. It's an example of Trump's penchant for living close to the line and always being on the edge. And this time he pushed it despite advice he was getting, despite all the warnings. And he has, in my opinion, not a legal leg to stand on. And he's not being really pursued for having the documents. It's for two acts of obstructing, deceiving a grand jury, 
and trying to deceive the Department of Justice and the grand jury on the surveillance tapes. So that is a strong case, and I'm not sure the department had any other choice but to bring it. I think the other department case on January 6th, as I've said, I think it's a legitimate case, but I think there were a lot of reasons at the time not to bring it, including the very strong sense of a double standard in the country where with one hand, they're pursuing this aggressively against the president, and on the other hand, they appear to be giving Biden kid glove treatment. And I think that that's doing a lot of damage to the department and the perception of our justice system. So, but nevertheless, I think the fact is that Trump went too far, and this is not an abusive reaction by the Department of Justice. And then finally, the Atlanta thing, for the reasons I said, I just think it goes too far, sweeps in too much. It sprawls all over the country. I don't think that was necessary. I think if Georgia had essentially done their version of the federal case and focused on the pivotal acts that crossed the line and tried to keep it narrow so it didn't look as if they were sweeping in all the speech and the political activity, it would be a lot more defensible. And then the practical question, General Barr, what's the likelihood all these cases going on, given that we have a presidential election campaign starting and you know, given the general time it takes to put cases like this with all of the rights of the defendant and discovery and all of that, what's the likelihood that any of these cases you think will come to trial before election day? You know, I have more familiarity with the federal system, and I think both federal cases could be tried before you know May. I think the January 6th case was constructed and narrowed so it could be quickly tried, and I think it will be, and I think a competent judge could move along that document case, which is very, actually, fairly simple. Move that forward at a fast clip. I'm not even sure why it has to wait till May, but that's the date that was set, apparently. I don't know enough about the New York system And I think just the magnitude of the Georgia case makes it doubtful, in my mind, that this is going to be done before the election. I want to come on to the Biden stuff, too, which you mentioned quite rightly, the sense of double standards people have. But again, just to then follow this through to its logical conclusion, you think, you know, those federal cases are both pretty strong. I mean, obviously, no one knows what happens in front of a jury and how a trial unfolds. And you think they can both be done in practical terms. They can both be heard or tried well in advance of the 2024 election. So, By the sound of things, you think there is a, and I I say this with a hint of sort of incredulity in my voice, not because I don't believe you, because it just seems such a bizarre state of affairs. You think there's a pretty good chance that Donald Trump will be both, as all the polling suggests, the likely Republican nominee for president next year and facing a prison sentence. Now, we'll see what happens with appeals and everything else, but there's a very strong probability that he'll be in that position as Republican nominee as a convicted criminal. It's a possible scenario. I'm still one of those who does not think he's going to get the nomination. But it is possible, and that's something that Republicans are going to have to consider. You know, in the current environment we are, it's sort of this black and white world where either totally for Trump or totally against Trump. And I think the fact is, I think we're here not because of persecution of Trump. I think we're here because of Trump's own personal excesses, and he's largely brought all this on himself. I mean, his behavior in the document case was outrageous, can't be tolerated. And I think... His actions after the election were also outrageous and shouldn't surprise us that there is a response to it. And the other thing is when you're leading a a political movement in a very contentious time and you hand a club over to your political adversaries, you shouldn't be surprised if they beat your brains out with it. 
Well, I'm joined this week by Ruel Mark Correct, Middle East scholar and commentator. Ruel's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and was previously at the American Enterprise Institute. His work has appeared widely, including, I'm glad to say, on the Wall Street Journal editorial pages. In an earlier career, he served as a case officer for the CIA, focused on the Middle East and theater. You know, the Biden administration continues to be publicly very supportive of Israel. Biden has given several speeches now, including in Israel, in which he gave powerful expressions of support. But there are increasing reports, obviously, sort of the behind the scenes, diplomatically, U.S. officials are urging significant restraint. There's even been some reports in some places that they're cautioning against a ground invasion. I want to talk about the wider U.S. role here and the wider implications for the U.S. But what do you think, from what you know and from the people you talk to, what do you think is the role that the U.S. is playing directly with Israel at the moment? Oh, I think uh, without a shadow of a doubt, the Biden administration is encouraging caution on the part of Israel that they don't want to see Israel go in full force into Gaza. So I think the recent uh, piece that uh, former President Barack Obama wrote is actually pretty reflective of where the Biden administration is now, and that is they want Israel to think of some other means uh, to punish Hamas, that something short of a land invasion of the Strip. Now, it's a very good thing that uh, President Biden has sent in, you know, two aircraft carrier groups into the region. But I would argue that the thing the United States ought to do is actually put down very firm red lines that affect Iran. That is to say very clearly, if Iran escalates, which I think it has to do, if Iran escalates and we see more missiles fly from Lebanon towards Israel, then the United States will attack Iran directly, cut out the proxies, go directly for the source. The Iranians have always feared escalation, so make them anxious. And I don't think we're at all there. I think we want to de-escalate. I think that's the official American position is de-escalate whenever possible. I think that's exactly the wrong approach to take to this. You want to make people fearful that, in fact, you're going to get much more involved and that you're going to do the unexpected. What would it take, do you think, to get this administration to, at least a minimum, to up its rhetoric with regard to Iran? I mean, we've seen these reports. Again, we know what Hezbollah's been doing. We know how close Hezbollah is with Iran. We obviously know how close Hamas is. But we've seen these, you know, these reports of direct attacks on U.S. forces in Syria. We had that episode of missiles being fired from Yemen, from sort of Houthis, again backed by Iran. You know, again, that was aimed at Israel, shot down by U.S. naval forces. Do you think that's what Iran is doing, like sort of provoking here and there, sort of prodding to just see essentially kind of how the U.S. responds? I mean, how much further does it have to go before the Biden administration does come out and say and issue that warning about escalation that you've just described? That's a good question. I mean, I think the Iranians have been probing. They always probe. And they probe because they are fearful of what the United States can do if it decides to do something. I think it's important to underscore this, that, I mean, Iran has spent a long time developing its axis of resistance. And there's a tendency, I think, amongst commentators to say the Iranians are always prepared to watch Sunni Arabs die. And Hamas is a Sunni militant Islamist movement. And Iran has an unlimited capacity to watch them die for the cause. I think everyone has to be careful about that. I think Iran wants to make the axis of resistance real. They want to expand it. They want to recover from the enormous damage 
uh, that the Syrian civil war did to their cause, where they lost sort of the ecumenical appeal to Sunnis because they had were helping the Assad regime in Syria slaughter hundreds of thousands of Sunnis. So I think you have to view this, this current war, as a means for Iran to sort of recover ground in the Middle East. So do they want to have the United States attack them directly? Do they want Israel to have them attack them directly? No. But I think they're willing to calibrate their aggression and escalate it significantly. And I think the objective for the United States and for Israel is to prevent them, deter them from doing that. Now, that isn't going to solve the the Gaza question for Israel. Obviously, the Israelis are going to have to make up their minds. Are they going to go in there and kill as many members of Hamas as possible and take down the stockpiles and the missile factories? I don't think there's any end run around it. There's no pleasant way to do that. That's going to be a bloody mess. But that's one question. And then you have to answer, I think, the larger question is, what are you going to do about Iran? Because Iran's hand in developing Hamas into a weapon against Israel has been pretty profound in the last few years. The coordination between them, the coordination with Hezbollah and Lebanon has been intimate and it's been increasing. I think the Israelis foolishly were ignoring it. The Americans were too involved with trying to get the Iranians to come back to some type of pay-as-you-go nuclear deal so they don't test an atomic device before the next presidential election in the United States. So I think we took our eyes collectively off the ball here, and the Iranians took advantage of it. Patrick Deneen is Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. His 2018 book, Why Liberalism Fails, set out a strong case against what political protagonists and thinkers of both left and right had long considered axiomatic. He argued that the liberal democracy most of us assumed had triumphed over all other competing ideologies in history in the closing years of the 20th century had in fact failed us. I know you're not a political pundit. I'm not asking you to handicap the uh, Republican primary race. There are many references you have to Donald Trump in your book and the state of the Republican Party today. Do you generally think the domination, as we seem to have right now, frankly, of the Republican Party and indeed perhaps, you know, the right side of American politics by Donald Trump, irrespective of what you think of the man himself, do you think that actually is moving the country in the direction that you've outlined in this book and that you argue that we need to go, that actually in broad terms, the kind of Trumpian populism that we're seeing is, is broadly where we should be going? Well, I think one thing it's that the appearance and partial success of Donald Trump has done is absolutely energized to the point of red-hot fury, energized the liberal oligarchy, <laughs> liberal oligarchy of both the right and the left. I think, you know, the fact that you have a kind of interesting and increasingly wedding or a kind of marriage between the kind of never Trump old Republicans, people who still are considered conservatives on the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, that these people who are called uh, so despise, of course, they despise Trump. But at a deeper level, I think they despise the threat that Trump and the Trump supporters pose to their commitment to a right liberal order or a classical liberal order. And of course, we see on the left just absolutely almost deranged madness when it comes to anything Trump. You know, his response to someone like George Bush or George H.W. Bush was unhinged. 
but the response to Trump has really become just an absolute mental breakdown of our nation. Is that because of the character of the man, though, or is that because of what he represents to a lot of people? He represents this challenge to the established elites, or is it actually, I mean, to be fair to some of those established elites, more to do with what they see as poor character on his part? You know, you would love a world, I'd love an experiment in which we could say we could have a kind of very measured and version of a Donald Trump and see what the reaction would be. But I actually suspect the reaction might not be all that different. You know, I think if someone like J.D. Vance were running for president, which I personally hope will happen at some point, maybe some people think he's just mad and insane. But I think you would see like approximating the same kind of fury over someone who posed a threat to the deepest commitments and even almost religious commitments on the part of the progressive left, as well as the kind of classical liberal right, that either on the economics front or on the kind of social issues that someone like that would provoke, and maybe not the same, I think, across the board agreement and, and sense that this man is just completely unfit for office, with which I don't necessarily disagree. But I think that at a deeper level, the fury over the character of the man acts as a kind of mass. Um, the deeper source of the fury, which is a defense of the current regime. It's defense of the current political order to which large numbers of people who have come of age committed to this particular alignment of liberalism that is recognizable only if you have a left and a right liberalism opposing one another, and truth and nail potentially to the death not to allow a kind of alternative to either right or left liberalism to come into being. I guess an objection that some people have raised to your arguments, and it certainly occurs to me as I read both these books, is that in the end what you're arguing for is essentially the kind of the substitution of, of the sort of values and ideas of the current ruling classes, the current establishment. You don't like that, and I don't like that, by the way. I'm completely with you on this. The kind of replacement with the prevailing orthodoxy that you and I might like, and that we think that should be the precepts and the principles by which the country should be run. And the beauty of liberalism, if you like, this country has lost, I think, a lot of the idea of the principle of pluralism. You know, people are allowed to hold different views about the way society should be run without one kind of view absolutely sort of extirpating uh, all alternatives and the other, and these ideas can kind of coexist. And again, that is what liberalism allows, isn't it? And it allows for the ebb and flow of political fortunes and, you know, the swing of the pendulum politically. Whereas, again, you seem to just want to sort of assert a set of political values that you and I may hold, but which perhaps half the country doesn't hold, and put that in charge rather than the existing framework. And surely, again, as I say, that the value of liberalism is that it enables liberty, it enables people to be able to choose their own path rather than have one prevailing ideology. Yeah, this is a common and a powerful objection. And I answer this in the same way that people usually describe efforts to constitute some alternative by ideals of natural law and ideals of sort of classical political theory, which is the following accusation about liberalism in this case, which is that it all sounds good in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. It seems to me that defining a liberal order and A's order is liberal. At some level, it is an order that has arisen out of the liberal tradition. You may think, and others think it's a kind of departure from it, but I actually think it's the realization of certain tendencies and trajectories within the liberal order. And it seems to me that this is an order that is not an order that is pluralistic, certainly not tolerant. It is an order that is becoming more and more tyrannical, more and more authoritarian. And it's doing so, ironically enough, in the name of liberty. 
Well, that's it for this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on Free Expression. Please join us again next week when we'll be exploring another of the big issues that are shaping our world. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks very much. Bye-bye.